Oh. Hey, so uh, in middle school and high school, like most everyone, I was utterly dependent on my older brothers or my parents to go anywhere or do anything fun. Right? I, I rode the bus, I walked to school, I rode my bike to work. Um, and and let, let me tell you a little bit about my bike. Um, my bike was a piece of junk. Um, now, I'm, I'm serious. My dad taught us how to fix things, and, and with six kids in the family, we often got broken things and fixed them up uh, and used them. So my bike was one of those where it had been a couple bikes and became one, uh, and it became my bike, and it did serve me well. Uh, but I was outgrowing my junk bike, uh, and it was beginning to fall apart again. And uh, on one of the many trips to the bike store, uh, I saw it. It was sitting there. It was, it was the GT Avalanche mountain bike. And I, I knew when I, I saw that this, this was the coolest mountain bike that, that ever was. And I, I, in that moment, seeing that bike, I just knew that if and when that bike would become mine, my life would be complete. And so I went up and I, and I got one of the free catalogs, the GT catalogs, and I, I took it home and, and I took the picture of the GT Avalanche and I pinned it on my wall. And it became my motivation and it came, became my, my, my goal. And I started working and saving. I mowed lawns. I pulled my junk lawnmower that we, my dad helped me build uh, behind my junk bike, and I started mowing people's lawns. I, I got a job as a lifeguard. I, I, even, I even stooped as low as, as uh, helping watch kids at a mops ministry at a church near my house. And I saved up, and I saved up, and I saved up. And, and then one day, I went to the bank, and I got my cashier's check. And then my older brother drove me to the bike's shop, and I walked in with my check, and I handed over that $1,200, and I had my bike. And as I stand here today, I can tell you that at, my, at that moment, my life was complete. I lived happily ever after. That bike fulfilled all my dreams, and I never wanted again. The end, right? You, you, you're all laughing, right? Because, because this is your story too, right? We all do this repeatedly. We put our dreams and our hopes in something, in some event, in some person, and we are convinced that this thing is going to make everything better. And they never do. We're going, to be, we're going to be talking about this idea this weekend as we continue our, our series through James. And, and so as we get ready to dive into God's Word, we're, we're, going to, we're going to do that. We're going to get ready to open up God's Word and we're going to hear from Him uh, this weekend. But as we do that, as we start, would you just join me and pray and ask God, uh, God to meet us here, that we would hear from Him as we read His words. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank You. For the privilege we have to come and to gather together and to worship you. And God, as we read your words, uh, we pray that you would speak to us. That you would teach us. That you would soften our hearts to hear what you have for us. And in our time together, 
Father, we pray that you would just draw us to yourself, that you would show us a glimpse of who you are and draw us to you. We ask this in your name. Amen. So as we continue this series through the book of James, we're starting uh, this weekend in James chapter 4. And at the beginning of this chapter, we see a familiar pattern emerge that we've seen repeatedly in the beginning chapters of James. And James, as we've seen again and again, he has this, this knack of going straight to the heart. Straight to the very practical things and the ways that we live out our faith. And so this weekend, we're going to use uh, what I like to call the spiritual symptom checker. Uh, you, you may have heard about WebMD, uh, and th- this is kind of like that, except for with the Bible and the Holy Spirit to lead us and not just a worried person and a computer. But the spiritual symptom checker helps us look at the things in our life, in our faith, and dive to the root of what is going on, what's wrong in our, in our faith. And so James looks at the symptoms in the life of a Christian. He diagnoses the disease and offers a remedy. In essence, he asks, is your faith real? Why are you fill in the blank? And says these things don't match up. Last week we saw this with the tongue. If our faith is real, why don't our words reflect it? An untamed tongue is a symptom that helps us diagnose a problem with our heart. And this week in our passage, James is at it again, looking at the symptoms that rise up in the way that we interact with one another, the way we relate with each other. And so wherever you're at uh, this weekend, if you're here at Kennedy, if you're down at Roshek, or if you're watching online, uh, I would invite you to, uh, to grab your Bible. Whether that's your app or one of the chair Bibles or your own Bible, and turn with me to James chapter 4. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. And if you're using the chair Bible, that's on page 979. We're going to look at these these first uh, 10 verses, but let's just read them together. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or you do think that Scripture says without reason that He jealously longs for the Spirit He has caused to dwell in us. But He gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and He will lift you up. So in this passage, let's, let's look at the, the symptoms that we see. Right? And in, the, in the first three verses here, we see some of the symptoms, the things that aren't quite right. We see fighting. 
We see quarreling. We see killing. We see envy. We see all these things in the relationship in the church. Why, why is there fighting? Why are you quarreling? Why are you bickering? Why are you murdering one another? And all these things, these symptoms, the fighting, the quarrel, the envy, they, they all are summed up as acts of the flesh. Does this sound like what the church is supposed to be? In Galatians 5, 19 and 20, as Paul's writing that letter to the church in Galatia, he, he talks about these, these, these fruits or the, the, the acts of the flesh. That He says the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he goes on and he lists the fruit of the Spirit, the things that are to be true of who we are. As followers of Christ, as the Spirit lives within us, that those things should become part of who we are, the fruit of the Spirit. And yet, as as we see in James, he's pointing out that in the church there's these things that the acts of the flesh are still prevalent. Why are we arguing with one another? Why are we fighting? Why is there discord? Why are there factions? Why aren't we getting along? What's wrong? Why do we fight? Why do we quarrel? Why do we kill? And before we dismiss that last one, all right, that I haven't killed anybody. Remember, we have to remember that uh, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus raised the bar on murder. Right? And he says that when we're angry with someone in our heart, he, he puts that on, on par with murder. And so why do we do those things? Right? And as, as James is addressing this, I don't think he's pointing about uh, all-out brawls in the church. Right? It's not like church has, has devolved into fight club or something like that. Right? But the question is, why are followers of Jesus not getting along? Why are there quarrels and arguments? Why are there disagreements? Why are we jealous? Why are we envious of others? Why do we let bitterness grow in our hearts? And just as James was pointing that out in the church, it's still true today. Right? It's still true of ourselves. If we're honest with ourselves, we, we can say those same things. Why, why is that true in me? Why do I have these same symptoms in my own heart? And so just as we've seen over and over again in the book of James, as we search for a diagnosis, it goes straight to the heart. And as James continues on, he, he points it out that the diagnosis for the symptoms that we have is that we suffer from an idolatrous heart. Now, idolatry isn't a common topic in our culture, right? We, not many of us deal with the, the golden statue in our homes that we offer raw meat to or burn things. Right? That's not something that's common for us. Uh, but let's, let's be clear about what idolatry really is. And I love... Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I love the way that he just simply defines idolatry. And he says this, An idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. That's what idolatry is. Idolatry isn't uh, the pictures that we make up or think of 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 some statue and people worshiping. That's not all of what idolatry is. Idolatry is whenever we allow something else to occupy the place in our heart that belongs to God alone. Whenever we put something else in front of Him. 
And as we read through James, that's what we see. This is why we're jealous. This is why we covet. This is why we're greedy. This is why we're envious of what other people have. It's simply because that we're valuing those things above God. We put a higher value on the things that we see or the, the things that we want, the things that we value more than God. We've allowed those things to become idols in our hearts. And because we have idolatrous hearts, we get into all sorts of arguments and disagreements and fights with others because they have what we want or what we think we want. You see, as humans, we were created to worship. You cannot not worship. Did you catch that? We were made to worship. All of us will worship something. We will worship. That is part of who we are. And if you look around, you see it in, in other people. It's really easy to look at other people and see their problems, right? And so, so for a moment, do that with me. We can look around at, at the people who live around us and that we know, and, and we can start to identify maybe the things that they're worshiping. What are the things that they value and put all their time? Is it, is it their job? Are they worshiping their job or, or the chase of, of their career? There's lots of people who are worshiping uh, their things, their accumulation of all the, the new toys and the new gadgets and all the things that they have. There are people who worship the, their family and constantly chasing after this, this perfect, idolized family of everything is perfect. <clears throat> so what is it that you worship? Is it your family? Is it your job? Is it your house? Is it your lifestyle, your hobby, your sport? What is it? And as we think about those things, we, we have to remember that, that those things are not bad. Right? The things are not the issue. It wasn't my bike, which is hanging in the garage with flat tires right now. <clears throat> it's not a new job. It's not a happy family. It's not the next gadget. It's not the next game system, right? It's none of those things. It's that we're worshiping the wrong thing. Because not only were we made to worship, we were made to worship our Creator. And Paul spells this out in Romans 1, 21 and 22, that, that as humans we've replaced the, the object of our worship. We've replaced what we should be worshiping our Creator with all the things that He has made for us. And we had, we've allowed those other things to take the place that God was made to take. We, we're looking to be fulfilled and satisfied by something that can never fulfill and satisfy us. Now, as we talk about idols, I would encourage you in the sermon guide, there's a whole uh, section in the sermon guide where you can look at idols, and there's a whole concept of the, the deeper idols, the things that, that drive idolatry in our hearts, and would encourage you to, uh, whether with your life group or just on your own, to, to dig through those. It's, there's some great stuff in there, but it boils down to this. We want and we don't have, so we get jealous. 
and we fight with those that we think have the things that we want. And that, that's our human nature. That's what we find again and again and again. Right? That we, we don't have something that we want, and so we get frustrated. We get, and all, all of relationships break down after that. James even goes on and says that we don't have because we don't ask. Right? We're not asking God for those things, and, and if we do ask, then oftentimes it's with the wrong motives. And I often think that, that uh, maybe we don't ask because we know it's not what we need. Right? That we're, we're chasing after something. We don't bother asking God for it because we know that it's not something that's good for us, but we want it anyways. Or maybe we don't ask God because we're so caught up chasing things that we've, we've forgotten about God entirely. And when it comes to this, it's just, uh, this is me and my pursuit, and I'll talk to you, God, on, maybe on Sunday. We know it's not what we need, but we want it anyway, and we can become consumed by it and this is so true in our culture and, and and it's so easy for us to just fall trapped because this is the way the world around us all works right our culture even social media just fuels this idolatry in our hearts uh, in a devotional that emily and i were doing recently the the author pointed out this this issue of idolatry in our hearts and and wanting things and he was talking about social media and even went as far as to rename one of the apps uh, that he uses and he, he started to call it instacovet right that, that we with social media with the culture that we're living where everything's constantly around us pointing out uh, and new and shiny things that promise us happiness and new and perfect lives, and everything around us is constantly uh, advertising us, right? Trying to, to lure us in with this new, perfectly photoshopped image of what life could be like. Right? The, the, the perfect story, the perfect family, leaving out all the, the gory details, right? All the truth, all the imperfections, no faults. And even though we know that, we take the bait. And we easily fall into the trap of worshiping those things or worshiping that career, or that path, or that object, or that idea. And God slips out of that place in our heart of worship and we replace it with something else. You see, Jesus didn't save us so that we can have nice things. Jesus saved us so that we could have Him. That we could be in right relationship with Him and worship Him. And so that is why we are guilty as charged. In verse 4, James calls it out. He says, you adulterous people. God will tolerate no rival in His children's heart. He is a jealous God. He wants us, and yet we're adulterous people. In the Old Testament, we find the story of Hosea the prophet. And this, this poor guy, his whole life was an object lesson for us. Right, God calls him and tells him to marry a prostitute. And the whole story of Hosea is of him loving this woman and chasing after her, and redeeming her, and buying her back, and rescuing her, and loving her, even though she was constantly unfaithful to him, and he chased after her. And it's a picture of us. 
that he redeemed her, he loved her, and he brought her back. And yet in that story, we have to remember that we are the unfaithful wife. We are the one who has been rescued and redeemed. And yet once we are loved and cared for, we go chasing off after the next shiny new thing. And we allow our hearts to be tugged at and pulled at and fall in love with something else. And yet, God chases after us. I think part of the problem is this, is that idolatry doesn't seem that bad. When we talk about idolatry, and as you look at the sermon guide and, and start to maybe do some of those exercises and kind of examine your own lives and start to point out idolatry, it's, it's, it's really easy for us to recognize the idols in our life. Right? Here are the things that I can focus on or, or pour my heart into or chase after. Right? Here's the things that maybe I put ahead of God. And we can, we can recognize those things, we can point them out, and we can even commit to fixing them. But we brush them off as just not being a big deal. But hear me, it is a big deal. It is such a big deal. I love, I love this quote from John Piper, and I've got it here for you, because I think it helps us grasp the, the reality of this sin. Because we do so easily just brush it off. And Piper says this, God is infinitely worthy and honorable, but sin says the opposite. Sin says that other things are more desirable and more worthy than God. Right? They're idolatry. Sin tells us that other things are more, more important, more valuable than God. And so he asks the question, how serious is this? The seriousness of a crime is determined in part by the dignity of the person and the office being dishonored. If the person is infinitely worthy, infinitely honorable, infinitely desirable, and holds an office of infinite dignity and authority as God does, then rebuffing Him is an infinitely outrageous crime that deserves an infinite punishment. Do you catch that? The reality of sin, the the reality of an idolatrous heart, we have offended and continue to offend an infinite holy God. And as such, we deserve a matching punishment. That's the reality of this idolatrous heart, this thing that we just often want to just kind of push off has not been a big deal and we'll fix it and we'll work on it. The reality of our sin is that we have offended a perfect holy God and we're deserving of an infinite punishment. Sin is a big deal. Idolatry is a big deal. And so as we look at the symptoms in our lives and we realize the problem is this idolatrous heart that we have. What's the remedy? How do we fix it? How do we, how do we fix ourselves? The reality is we can't. But what's the remedy? James, in, 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 in the way that James does, he lays out in a very simple fashion. The remedy is total submission of our heart. We have to submit to God. We have to surrender to God. We have to allow God to have that place in our heart of ultimate worship. That we worship Him and Him alone. Acknowledge Him as Creator, as Lord of all, and surrender to Him. You know, I'm talking about ultimate surrender. Right? We're waving the right white flag. We're done. We've got nothing left. 
I'm done fighting. I'm done trying. I'm, I'm, I'm quitting. Right? I'm, I'm not going to do this life on my own anymore. I know that I can't. I keep trying. I keep failing. I cannot do this on my own. God, I need you. I surrender to you. I am not king. You are. We have to surrender. And when we talk about a total surrender of our heart, this, this is the good news of the gospel. That's, that's, this is why we gather as a church. Right? Because of this, it's not because we've got things figured out on our own, not because we can do it and we're all perfect and we come here happy, living perfect lives and look how great we are and we're all smiling, shiny people, right? No, we come here because we're broken people who have surrendered to the gospel. We have surrendered, we acknowledge that God is king and we are broken screw-ups who need him. It's not up to us. We can never do it on our own. We have wholly offended a perfect God and are deserving of an infinite punishment. But God. Jesus came and took the punishment that we deserved. That's the gospel. That's the good news that we cling to, that God has rescued us and He's waiting for us to surrender. So James calls us to repent. And if you never have surrendered before, if you've never repented of your sins and come to Jesus and I need you, then, then today's the day. Don't wait. Jesus is waiting. He's longing for you to come to Him. him. He, he went to the cross because He loves you. He took the punishment, the infinite holy punishment that you deserved, and He took it on Himself because He loves you. And his invitation is to come, surrender to me. Many of you already have surrendered. But, but you find yourself in this point where you once again have picked up the responsibility and the task of trying to do everything on your own. And you've allowed something else to take over that part in your heart that Jesus belongs. Surrender again. Confess, repent, run to Jesus. Like the story of Hosea, Jesus is there again and again and chasing after us, loving us. He has redeemed us and He longs for us. We're called to purify our hearts. Have our hearts wholly devoted to Jesus alone that we've surrendered to Him. And I love how these last two verses in James are, are paraphrased in the message. Let me read these last two verses from the message. It says, Purify your inner life. Quit playing the field. Hit bottom and cry your eyes out. The fun and games are over. Get serious. Really serious. Get down on your knees before the Master. It's the only way you'll get on your feet. Quit playing the field. Quit chasing after other things. Get on your knees and surrender to Jesus. Purify your hearts. We need hearts that are wholly surrendered to Jesus alone. You see, we can't fix our actions, the symptoms of our life, with, with a superficial remedy. Right, we have to go to the source of our problem. Right? Our selfishness and greed, our fighting, our disagreements are a symptom of a heart that is divided. Chasing after lots of things. 
We need total surrender. And Paul put it this way in Galatians 2, verse 20. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That's what full surrender looks like. Now that Jesus went to the cross for us. He rescued us. And, and I want my life to be crucified with Christ. I've given up control of my life. I've surrendered it to Jesus. I'm, I'm trusting in His way, in what He has done for me, putting all my hope in what He has done on the cross. It's no longer I who live, but Christ. Because He loved me and He gave Himself for me. So the remedy for a heart that's divided, a heart uh, that is worshiping other things, a heart that's chasing after everything, is surrender and chasing after Jesus. As we uh, wrap up our time, I want to just uh, pray this prayer that, that Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus. And so would you pray with me? For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of His glorious riches He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled to the measure and all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do so immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to His power that is at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.